Thank you very much. Matthew. Thanks, man. I suspect that I'm going to talk less directly about the actual contents of the book than the other two debaters. There's a reason for this, of course. The words emergency, last minute, substitute are a pretty good description of what that reason is. And That's an interesting one. I was, I was hoping nobody was going to talk about David Johnson, the 1970s because that just gives away how old I'm becoming. I think. But, but that would be one way uh, of trying to describe what I'm doing here. What I really want to do is to try to um, tease out some more of the issues of the themes of the book that Mark himself has spoken about, uh, in particular the contradictions uh, that he uh, already envisages uh, that become part and parcel of trying to commission uh, a book of this nature. So to try to get at those contradictions, I want to talk about boundaries and schools uh, and IPE. And I wonder just how far it is uh, possible at all uh, to go down the boundary-busting route uh, that Mark wants us to take uh, with his handbook, uh, tucked nicely uh, under our arm. Uh, I think he tells uh, a story which is convincing about the need uh, to dismantle boundaries. But the problem becomes how you do that, and whether it's possible to do that in any other way than simply to re-establish other boundaries uh, somewhere else. So what does boundary busting actually mean? Uh, does it just mean shifting boundaries to a more convenient place for you uh, and for your style of work? Uh, or does it mean uh, a radical dismantling uh, of what it uh, formally means to be doing IPE? I wonder about schools in the same sense. Uh, is school busting nothing more than overwriting one conception of where one school starts and another school ends and simply replacing it with another conception about well, where one school starts and another one ends? You might give the schools a different name, but the schools themselves exist. And I suspect that even if you do simply just happen to replace one school with another, then the problems that are entailed with thinking within the uh, framework of schools simply gets replicated once again. Even if the schools have a different name, they serve the same purpose. They serve the same purpose of regulating uh, the type of knowledge production that can take place. Nonetheless, I think the handbook itself is a courageous undertaking. I think it's impossible to commission a book of this nature without inadvertently suggesting boundaries. However much you might want to uh, use your opening introduction to say that your aim is exactly the opposite, I think it's absolutely uh, impossible uh, to uh, commission something that could be so exhaustive that it doesn't draw quite sharp lines between the sorts of things that are included in the book and the sorts of things that aren't. I also detect something specific about IPE in this respect as well. It is an IPE audience that this book is aimed for. But I suspect that there's a culture of dissatisfaction amongst most IPE scholars about the very notion uh, of boundaries, about the very notion of being told how to get on with their IPE uh, and how to undertake their IPE studies. This culture is only activated when people are brave enough to act as lightning conductors by reflecting on where IPE's limits might be or should be drawn. But as soon as you engage in that process, uh, I think you do leave yourself open uh, for a range of criticisms that you probably would not uh, like uh, to have brought upon yourself. I also think the culture of dissatisfaction itself with boundaries in IPE is something that's worth reflecting on uh, and something that we might begin to discuss as to where the roots of that culture of dissatisfaction comes from. What's it mean? Why is it there? Is it possibly evidence of a field that wants to celebrate what is still its youthfulness and its youthful vitality and fears that this might be lost by the entrapment of boundaries? Boundary busting seems to play to this uh, conception that most IPE scholars have of their own subject field, of being a, a young field that's still there to be defined, uh, to be activated in whatever way that allows you to generate the questions that you want to ask, to make the statements about the world that you want to make with the authority uh, of a fully worked out, uh, comprehensively theorised position behind you. But does this get lost within the mere suggestion uh, that there are boundaries uh, that should uh, in some sense, dictate the sort of work that we do. 
And if boundary busting is simply about the replacement of one set of boundaries with another, does this mean that the furthest we can move is from one form of entrapment by boundaries to a rather different form of entrapment by boundaries? The culture of dissatisfaction about boundaries within IP, though, could be evidence of something very different. It could be evidence of a field that still doesn't know what it might become, where the very youthfulness of the field means that the future is forever something to be shaped, something to be defined, uh, and something that we tread warily towards. There are many, many different articulations of fear of colonisation within IPU. So this might be one uh, answer as to why there's this culture of dissatisfaction with the very notion of boundaries. That as soon as you start talking about boundaries, those boundaries might take you to somewhere that you really don't want to go. Or it could be evidence of a field that shirks finding out what it already is. Uh, the notion of absences that Shireen has talked about. When we begin to talk about absences, we find out a lot about the way that we undertake our own scholarship. However open, however inclusive we want to be, that we think we might be in our own scholarship. We can have absences revealed to us simply by this process of talking about boundaries and thinking about what their definition actually means. Specifically on the handbook, with these things in mind though, I wondered when I was looking through it, what the psychology of reading the chapters is likely to be, what the psychology of writing the chapters indeed is likely to be. It would seem to me that there's a very big difference between on the one hand writing an account of the historical development of a regional tradition of IPE, or on the other hand writing a justificatory piece on behalf of the community who populates that tradition. I'm really not sure that the two things are the same. And I also suspect that there's something in the psychology of writing pieces like this that you might be drawn, even inadvertently, towards the latter. Towards trying to make the justificatory statements on behalf of a particular conception of IPE. And whose conception of IPE is it that you do that for? Well, obviously it's your own. So the personal statements about how you review the field often get uh, re-imprinted uh, as making the case for a particular type of IPE and a particular type of IPE that will reproduce a number of the exclusions uh, that Shireen uh, talks about. I think this is problematic for anyone uh, who attempts uh, to lay down markers in this sort of area. And I've attempted to do this myself, so I know that those difficulties also uh, impact and uh, affect my own work. I think it's a difficulty of identifying who it is that you're representing uh, when you make the case for a particular IPE, when you make the case for talking on behalf of a particular community of IPE scholars. I think this is, this is particularly troublesome for IPE when so many of the people that lots of IPE scholars think are the best IPE scholars don't actually self-identify as IPE scholars uh, in the first place. This is one of the points that, that Mark made. How do you authoritatively represent them within the framework of what IPE should be when they don't even think that what they're doing uh, is IPE itself? So if you can't represent them, um, how uh, do you seize any sort of uh, authority to consensually talk about a vision of IPE on their behalf? These are very, very difficult things uh, to do. But I think this is almost inevitably uh, what we all end up doing whenever we try to uh, define uh, IPE, we make a case for a particular type uh, of IPE. One of the issues uh, that I get worried about in this respect is what happens when the definition of the, the particular type of IPE is conducted within a discussion about schools. Uh, and Marx talked about schools and how he wants to get away from the notion of schools, but I think some of the objections to this disciplinized thinking within schools uh, bear repetition uh, once again. The problem that I have, the problem that Richard and I wrote about uh, in the piece uh, that uh, helped to form the backdrop uh, of the first debate last year, focuses on the difficulty that ensues when by identifying with a particular school you accept a particular uh, identity uh, of writing. Uh, the school-based notion immediately brings into operation uh, labels labels of identification that people uh, wear and that people use uh, as an introduction uh, into their own works. The problem with labels is their ability to generate adherence. 
often largely unreflexive uh, adherence. Within such a conception, there's no need to understand the history of your own subject field, the usually complex and never fully determined history of your own subject field, if all you need as your starting point is to align yourself to a particular school. Such alignment is where the foundations of a subject field become increasingly less contestable, or at the very least they become increasingly less contested. You don't have to begin to contest the foundations of your own subject field because you don't even have to think about them. You simply have to think about how you align within a particular arrangement of individual schools. You choose your school uh, and you stick with it. I think this is a problem uh, and I think it's a concern uh, that the whole notion of the foundations uh, of international political economy uh, are, have the potential anyway uh, to become lost, to become lost in the promotion of distinct and competing schools, possibly in the very identification of those schools. The more that I'm asked to think about these things, the more anti-school I become. Uh, I hate to think that I'm trying to uh, initiate the anti-school school, school. <laughs> but at the same time I think um, that there is a need to reflect and to reflect very deeply about what is lost um, and what sacrifices you have to make to your own scholarship to identify yourself clearly with a particular uh, school of thought. I would prefer a practice of IPE where scholars or students are required to justify their arguments in relation to the concepts on which they're based, as well as to those concepts rich intellectual histories, and how those rich intellectual histories actually tell you something about the conditions of production of the concepts themselves. I think this is a much more uh, open, much more reflexive form of IPU theorising, rather than conducting arguments in relation to the school in which those arguments are embedded. The concern that I have is that the geographical distinctions that seem to dominate school-based thinking, and which also reappear in the handbook, uh, that they usually act as a front for methodological distinctions. So Mark envisages the handbook as a means of allowing different regional traditions of IPE to engage in a global conversation. But if those geographical distinctions are actually some sort of front for methodological uh, distinctions, it might be possible that uh, conversation is all but ruled out, and it's all but ruled out on methodological terms. Are we still approaching uh, conceptions of IPE based on incommensurable methodological schools vying for supremacy? The piece that Richard and I wrote about this uh, tried to warn against IPE's methodological competition, where the judgment about what makes uh, good IPE is based simply on what is good methodology, whatever that methodology uh, becomes. I have a question to Mark to finish with. Mark, how do you conceive the handbook's relationship to the struggle over methods within the US political science community? I think it was interesting that you were drawing the link between uh, IPE uh, and political science. Mm -hmm. Is it a reaction uh, against um, what could be seen uh, as particular forms of methodological predominance within the US uh, political science community. Are you trying to suggest that there is scope for uh, sensible, reasoned engagement across methodological boundaries, or is the handbook actually part of the active uh, struggle uh, over methods? Mm -hmm. um, is it there simply uh, to try to forward uh, the different routes uh, into a broadly uh, mono-methodological uh, form of IPE. Uh, Jeff's comment about the absence of economists and what economists think about IPE um, suggests that there might be, I don't know whether this is deliberate or not, that there might be uh, an element of the handbook which is a part of this uh, struggle over methods. Could we even read the handbook to say that sensible re reasoned engagement can only begin once you've accepted some of the methodological imprints that are tightly bound uh, within the book itself? Maybe the methodological imprints uh, of the perestroika position within the US political science community uh, that I know you at least dabbled with uh, at times uh, earlier on in your uh, career. Um, so is this an endeavour to create intellectual space uh, away from rational choice uh, colonisation? Is that how we should be reading uh, the handbook? I think I would have sympathy for such a project. 
think I would be able to identify my own work much more clearly with that sort of IPE uh, than with a rational choice IPE. But once again, this would mean imposing boundaries. And once again, those boundaries uh, facilitate the identification of particular schools. And once again, those schools are likely to beget labels and allegiances uh, and acolytes. So how far down the road to boundary busting uh, is it possible to go uh, with any piece of work, uh, let alone with the handbook itself? I was struck when thinking about what I was going to say uh, with a comment uh, by Keynes in the uh, preface to the general theory, and he reflects on the thought process uh, as a struggle to escape uh, other aspects of the thought process that have been handed down intact and reproduced for you to find your place within. Not your place alongside them, or outside them, or in opposition to them, but your place within them. Does the handbook provide a means of escape, Mark? Uh, is it intended to? Or does it simply erect newly delineated schools uh, which then future handbooks might find the need to escape from? <laughs> Okay, our intention here is to leave uh, at least half an hour for Q&A. We've got to half six, but I think um, what we did decide we would want to do is to offer Mark a, a first minutes. cut at having a go at, at some of those points, and, and maybe they can act as a springboard for, for things that you want to say. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for such generous and gentle comments. They could have been a lot worse. Um, <laughs> Being from Dundee, I've got a pretty thick skin, but at the same time, when it is something that you have done, it is sort of your product, then sometimes you can get a little bit, ooh, but I get told off. So that was very gently done, so I'm grateful for that. Um, so it's just some brief, but hopefully su substantive comments. Um, there's a model in economics which I like called equilibrium beliefs, and it goes something like this. And this, this speaks, I think, to issues that have been raised in general. Um, imagine a mega church in the south of the United States. The church is the main social institution in the south. Everything's, you have to drive everywhere, you can't walk, you don't bump into people. So let's say I took a job at Duke University down there, and I'm married, and I want to get my wife hooked up with a job. And we don't believe in God, and we hate churches. This is all true, by the way. And, uh, you know, in order to get her hooked up and get the kids friends and all that sort of stuff, we just have to swallow it and go to church, because that's where everybody is. So we go there, and we're horrified, and you know, I happen to meet a guy, and he looks horrified, and we go out for a beer, and we confess that neither of us actually believe in God. And I'm like, yes! So then we hang out, and then we meet more people, and it turns out none of them actually believe in God, but they all go to church because of the services that it provides, from childcare and hookups and all that sort of stuff. And imagine a situation in which you could have 100,000 people in a mega church, and none of them actually believe in God. Because everybody's in it for the other benefits. But everybody's performing it. And given the fact that they're all performing it, it has the same functional effect as if they all believed in God. So none of them believe in God, but it have the same functional form. This is about exclusion too, because sitting on a journal board has convinced me of something. There's two sides to exclusion. One is deliberate exclusion. And deliberate exclusion was manifest very, very clearly when uh, Manny Adler took over I.O. and it went to Toronto. Because at that point, every constructivist on the planet went, yes! And they got 10,000 submissions. The bad news is, all the old rationalists that were on the board are still on the board, and they're all getting dinged just as quickly. There's overt gatekeeping, and that's an example of overt gatekeeping. But there's also submission bias. And this is what struck me, and I mentioned this earlier, I mean, quite seriously, I mean, you know, I read Lily Ling's work, and also know Ayatollah um, uh, and Blaney's work and so on and so forth. We don't get that. It just doesn't come to us. It's the same with feminist scholarship. And you made a fantastic intellectual case for why this should be in the book. Yes, completely. I completely agree. And it was my error. Now here's the question that I want to put back. Why don't I know that? I mean, I try and read a hell of a lot of stuff. And I just don't know this literature. I don't see it. It doesn't come to me in terms of the submissions that I get and what we try and run as an open and pluralistic journal. And that's the other side of it. There's a self-censorship, a self-fulfilling prophecy that goes, oh, well, don't bother trying to send it there because you'll never get it in. And if everybody thinks that, it's the megachurch with no believers. You end up with exactly that same position. And I think that's the blindness 
that I can't, that's where my blindness comes from, in part. And the, the two sides have to talk more. There has to be a conversation in that sense. But my blindness is my blindness, and I'm responsible for that. And it will be in the second edition, I guarantee you. <laughs> um, oh, but one quick comment. Where are all the women? They were asked. They all said no. You didn't ask me. No, that's true. But I did ask Claire Cutler, Melada Bukovansky, Jackie Best, Kate Weaver, and a couple of others. And they all said flatly no. So that actually tells me something about the rational trade-offs that women academics make in terms of what? Rank legitimate volume. I'm not doing that crap. Um, too busy trying to get into I.O. <laughs> Their mistake... That's all I'm saying. Um, the issue of conversation and boundaries is the other one as well. To go back to boundaries. Um, yeah, it's absolutely impossible. I mean, Matt's right. What I'm doing is a contradiction. I'm trying to bust boundaries, and the very action of doing so creates the boundaries, and the exclusion of feminist scholarship is exactly that. I don't know how to go over that. I don't. But in terms of, you know, is this part of the methods war and all that sort of stuff? God, I'm so bored of that stuff. Um, my, I, I, put, I, I have a piece coming out in NPE. Hopefully it'll be the last thing I ever write about this type of stuff, right? Enough of the navel-gazing. But... One of the points I make is, when I think about American IPE and its very quantitative and rationalist and formless guys, I worry about its redundancy. I worry about its long-term viability. Because there are people who do this stuff really well. They're called <coughs> economists, right? And if all you're doing is sticking a lag debate in the equation called politics and then throwing a little bit extra data at it, you're not as good as an econometrician who's getting tenure at MIT who can do this stuff in her sleep. So what the hell is the point in this? It's, it just strikes me as being utterly redundant. Eventually the economists are going to kill you because you're doing it at the level of a second-year grad student in the Econ PhD program. I think it's daft. I'm not saying that about Jeff's work. I'm saying that it's <laughs> Far from it. He's at least 30 a page job. Um, but the problem is if, if you're going to hang it all on a technology, then there are other people from lots of different social sciences who do that technology equally well. So I just don't think it works. It's about questions and concepts in that regard. And that's what it has to start. But to step back, you know, is this an, an intervention into that? I suppose it is, but it's unintentional. Yeah. I don't care. When I, worry, when I think about, to reify the school, when I think about British IPE, I don't worry about its um, long-term viability. I worry about its coherence. Because it really does strike me that it is a field. I mean, it's a huge field of study. It's like, a, let's reinvent the whole social sciences. Come on, let's bring them on. And, and it's got that quality to it, which is really dynamic and exciting, but also, and this is part of the reason I wrote the book, is like, how do you get a handle on this? Right? You know, what is it to do IPE of that sort of like? So one of them, I think, is becoming an intellectual dinosaur, and the other one is the size of a dinosaur. So I'm not entirely sure what to do with the two of them there. Um, was one of the things, just one thing I wanted to say there. Um, where was it again? All the methods. Uh, no, I think that's it, basically. That's the main point, so I don't want to say it. I'll keep it to six minutes. <coughs> that's lovely. Well, you'll have, you'll have another chance. Okay, um, let's, uh, let's throw it open, and uh, I, panellists will also have a chance to say things as well if they want, but I, I thought it might be good to collect some comments and questions and observations from the audience. Uh, we'll start with Mike. If, if, there's, if there's questions in clusters, we'll take them in clusters. Mike. Okay, I guess there's a number of PhD students here today, and when you do a PhD, usually what you're told to do is kind of find your school, locate yourself within it, and work from that basis. So a lot of the critique that we heard effectively is a critique of the way which PhDs are structured and run. And if you want people to go beyond what you're all probably ultimately really in agreement on, yet at the same time you're all probably culpable in making PhD students do exactly what it is you're now criticising them for. Um, you know, at some point, again, it was raised, you know, who's the gatekeeper, who's responsible? I suppose all IPE scholars who, who teach graduate students have to kind of take responsibility themselves for that to some extent. That was the first thing. Obviously, the second thing was, it reads like a, like a menu at a fancy restaurant full of wonderful meals. But if you were to stick them all in a bucket and serve them up to the guy that wanted Mr. Creosote, yes. He eats too much and it explodes. I mean, is it really a discipline? And this was the question when I first arrived as a PhD student at Warwick University. I ended up in a room with um, 
um, Wynn Grant and Peter Burnham, and they were whispering things like, it's not a discipline, you know, ha, ha, ha. I mean, and you're kind of, in some cases, reinforcing that point. You yourself say, I'm worried about British IPE because it's a dinosaur. That dinosaur is about a quarter or a third of your own mega dinosaur. Um, where are we going, really, I suppose? Um, and then, obviously, the things that were missing. I think Shirin made some excellent points about where are the women. Because you can see all the literature coming out right now, especially all these books on um, the international political economy of the global sex trade. This is kind of like a big issues in IP. There's plenty of feminist scholarship out there. And obviously, women represent 51% of the people on the planet. And IP was always a discipline where there were lots of women involved, lots of women PhD students. But also, I think, more than 50% of the people in the world come from developing states. Mm -hmm. So the other thing, I guess, that you could say about this is you've got very few people from developing states are represented. And where you do go for um, people from developing states in your Asia section, I mean, I'm from Australia, obviously. I'm not sure if any of these people would have been on my list of, of Asian IPE scholars. I mean, I, I, I don't know Jason Sherman, but I'm pretty sure that's Campbell Sherman's son. Is that right? It yeah. might be. Yeah. I think so. I'm pretty sure when I was doing my undergraduate degrees at UWA, I think he was in the States doing the whole time. So, for example, when the Asian economic crisis occurred, I met Richard at that point. I'm pretty sure he, he wasn't around. And the point you were kind of making about Australian IPE is not really being engaged with Asia. And I remember being there at those conferences at the time of the Asian economic crisis. And we might have been more British, but it was precisely an engagement with Asian scholars on these issues of the developmental state, which, uh, which struck me at the time. So I, I didn't really kind of buy what, what, what you said. Not having read it, that's probably a bit unfair. And, and the final thing, I guess I wanted to say um, actually it's gone out of my head I'll just call it okay, I think we're at least three things there anyway anybody else want to throw anything in the ring now should we have a there's a few things there to pick to pieces Mark do you want to no I wouldn't leave off Mark do you want to go for it uh, okay. Um, I think I'm feeling good about my PhD supervision. I'm not sure I've ever told uh, any of my PhD students to find a school. I never told him that either. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm pleased to hear it, Richard. Um, I, I would always want them to start by finding their question. Um, I then want them to understand their concepts, um, and I want them to historicise the discussion of those concepts and to work out... Uh, how those impact upon the types of questions that they're able to ask about the world. I see that none of my PhD students have walked out in disgust or now have their hand up, so uh, hopefully uh, they recognise in their own experience um, that, sort of, um, that sort of approach. And no, I don't think IPE is a discipline, um, and I also hope that it's not. Um, I, I think it's a subject field. Um, I think most of us that uh, work even if only from time to time within IPE have a relatively good idea uh, about what the subject field is, uh, the sorts of work that it contains. Uh, but I think there's there's far too much uh, well-intended searching outside for it to uh, take the uh, take the nature uh, of a discipline. Uh, this might be um, what Jeff called uh, an over propensity to import. Um, but that also might be a reflection of still how young uh, IPE is, uh, given just how unsettled most of the uh, most of the broad conceptions of what the field uh, is all about are. Uh, then I think it's almost inevitable that uh, IPE will look outside uh, of where it is now for for useful synergies. Okay. Yeah, I just say two things. Um, I maybe get more guilty than Matthew of engaging in the types of practices that you're saying. And I know at LSE, we do run a PhD student workshop in political economy and public policy, where the students give two-hour presentations of their shortened version of the dissertation. And one of the things one of my colleagues, who shall go nameless, uh, encourages them to do is to identify their intellectual allies and adversaries. And he's very clear about that. And I think that's a good thing and a bad thing. Bad thing for the very things that we've heard today. It's a good thing because oftentimes one of the things that 
that Mark talks about in the book is there's all this work out there that goes unacknowledged and you don't understand what it's about and you don't cite it and you may even have the potential to replicate it. So it's important in that sense for students to comb the field. I also think that part of it is, again, down to back to one of these things I said earlier in my comments, part of the nature of disciplinary politics. For good or for bad, when you write a journal article for any journal, at least for the ones that I, that I tend to try to aim for, one of the rhetorical practices or stylistic practices that you're taught or perhaps learned, maybe I just learned them, is these are the people I'm challenging, these people I'm building off of. I'm challenging these guys, journal editor reads it, he goes, okay, I'll send one of these pieces, one of the reviewers will be one of the challengers, and I'm building on these guys, and I'll send it to one of these. And that's the way that you write, and you're forced to write that way, and you're forced to write that way in order to get promoted, to get more money, to get bigger grants, and so on. And that's just the nature of the beast, and I don't, and I don't know if that's gatekeeping so much as just sort of just the way that things are done. Um, the other comment I would make is, I am also troubled by British IPE. I try to get my head around it sometimes, and I'm like, Mark, I get lost in all of it. And a lot of it comes down to me, again, to this nature of replication. If I can't replicate what you're doing, I understand how you got the results, then to me it's not, I hate to use the word science, because I still think of that in those terms, it's not even a study, because I can't go back and, and, and do what you've done. And a lot of British IPE, because it's so broad-based, so pluralistic, so open to these things, that I think it could use a little bit more of that rigor towards replication, in the sense that Cameron and Palin uh, encourage us to do. It's not become more American, but to become, I know this might rub people somewhat the wrong way, a bit more scientific, a bit more rigorous in that sense, but only appealing to that nature of replication as the underlying uh, theme. Um, I think, sort of, you know, um, I would probably be on Matt's side on that than this replication business. Um, for a simple reason, really, that I think uh, asking questions is also deeply methodologically driven. So if you say you need to have a methodological frame within which to ask a question, then the questions you will ask would be of a particular kind. And if that is what is leading your inquiry, then we get into all sorts of replication issues, which is not what Jeff is sort of you know, uh, concerned with. My replication issues would be, you're replicating a particular politics, or are you replicating a particular school, or you're replicating actually some very old questions. And I think that does link up with some of the key questions that are being asked today, which have been asked as well as attempted answers being given in different traditions, whether it is development studies, whether it is feminist work, whether it's post-colonial uh, studies, whether it is you know, race and political economy, they have been asked. Those questions about power, those questions about exclusions, those questions about every day have been asked, but why are they not recognized? So then is it a question of recognition, which becomes then a question of inclusion, a politics of inclusion and the terms of inclusion, rather than one of exclusion? So, you know, Mark quite rightly said, I asked, and he named some. Well, he could have asked 20 more, and he would have got some. So how do you recognize feminist political economy as political economy? How do you recognize what feminists do as, or post-colonial scholars do as political economy? What are the key questions? Are these so different from the ones that are being asked by IPE? Is that the problem? Or is it that there is what Diane Elson sort of called about, you know, her book is, is uh, the male bias in the development process? So if you have that bias, then you just don't recognize it, even if it hits you in, in, in the face. So, but having said that, I mean, one thing that I would like to say is um, there's an awful concept, which I think we are trying to get a look at Carol here, um, we're trying to get away from it to some extent, which is gender mainstreaming. Uh, you know, it causes a lot of problems, uh, p both sort of um, academically and, and, and politically. But I think what Mark said, which was very sensitive, which is also about that it is a conversation which needs to happen both ways. So the question is not simply that sort of, you know, right is not getting these. It's like what we have at Warwick. 
you know, we are constantly saying we are, not, we are you know, into diversification, and yet the students we get are fairly middle-class kids. I'm teaching far more middle-class kids now across the world. It's globalized middle-class now as opposed Absolutely. to before. But I'm, and I'm teaching people who are far more diverse in this room, for example, than I was sort of, you know. But on the other hand, on issues of class, I see far less diversification. So intersectionality of, of, of these issues is also something that we need to, to have regard to. Um, well, let me try and take perhaps the most... I, I would agree with those comments. I would simply push it a little further. If I could do anything, if I just could do anything at all, there's no limits at all, I would abolish all disciplines. Uh, because I actually think that they're a real hindrance to knowledge. So, for example, when I'm leaving here, I'm going off to a conference in Italy, and there's going to be three political scientists, but it's mainly biologists, um, complexity theorists, chemists, this sort of stuff, um, who really are kind of just fed up of only talking to people who already know all the same stuff that you do. I, eventually, there's diminishing returns to learning. Um, disciplines are a medieval apparatus. Dissertations that have more footnotes than they have text, that aren't read by anyone, that have absolutely no real-world impact, that are you know, soul-destroying three-year-long projects that, if you're lucky, half your committee are right read. I mean, there's got to be a better way. I mean, really, there has to be. And I think that has to happen. Is, and again, this is where the word conversation is, is not a trope. I mean, it really has to be a conversation because it's only by talking to people who know things that you don't that you learn. So in my response um, to you know, the, the, the absence of feminism, I mean, that's where, that, that's where my motivation is in saying that. I'm not saying it's to be nice, you know. Oh, we need to have the women chapter. No, 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 no I'm not saying that. Saying, okay, this is great stuff. This sounds awesome. How come I don't know that? I need to know this. So I think we need that spirit of engagement, and having disciplines really, I think, destroys a spirit of engagement, or rather it destroys an ethic of engagement, and that's something I do find really troubling. Okay. Uh, Richard? Do you have a question? <laughs> Sorry. Anybody else? Yeah. Uh, I'd like to talk about the feminist IP. As, uh, as Matthew can remember, we had a very, very brilliant discussion about this subject in our IP class. And I have to say that I was a bit skeptical at first, but uh, after reading about the gender, gender problems within IP, I realized a few things. First of all is that the problem that I see is that feminist IP theorists don't actually, most of them, and don't actually try to contribute to the current status, the current theory, but they're trying to nihilize the sort of homo economicus kind of model that is a patriarch community and is based on uh, masculine standards. So that's a problem there, and I totally agree. But the funny thing is that I've read many, many stuff on from IP theorists, and none of them was a man. Every one of them was, all of them were women. And uh, they are not, I mean, what I'm trying to say is, what is it better if they actually try to integrate instead of saying, you're wrong, you're doing this, you're following a wrong path, and trying to start from the beginning. I don't know if that makes I don't know, sense or whatever. Thank you. Uh, Paul? Um, yeah, I, I sort of wanted to perhaps respond a little bit to what Mark, uh, Mark was just saying um, in, in way of a question. Because um, it sounded very appealing, the, the, the idea behind it. But I, but I wondered um, to what extent trends within the world have been moving against that mm -hmm. sometimes. So, we look at the natural sciences, they've become ever more specialized over time. There's no dialogue between even sub-disciplines within a discipline. Um, and if you if you look at what um, where the transferability has been between subject areas, between topics of interest, it tends to have been where there's been very deep expertise in a technology. Mm -hmm. to, to, so you get quants moving into finance, you get you know that kind of movement. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of, um, there seems to be a trade-off between a depth of expertise in a method and, and a, a potential breadth of application in a method. 
or a depth of expertise or knowledge, if you like, in a, in a subject area. Um, I'm wondering how, how we might go about breaking this, uh, this tension um, to, 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 to allow this kind of greater uh, general approach. Um, ben? Um, just a thought about interdisciplinarity, which has been sort of touted as a good thing often in this discussion, and I'm prepared to believe it is, but I wonder if kind of IPE walks the walk of interdisciplinarity as well as talking the talk of interdisciplinarity. Whichever global version of IPE, if we're going to stay within geographically defined schools of IPE, the question could be asked whether it's genuinely, and it comes back to Jeff's point about much more import than export going on, and are, is IPE actually just parasitical upon, upon a range of other sort of other social sciences not far away from IPE? but not actually contributing anything to them. And if that's true, is it more true of some versions of IP than other, others, and is it problematic? And then just one other thought about um, this ideas about rigor and, and being scientific. I presume that there are quite different geographical understandings of what those terms mean. And are those different understandings geographically of science, being scientific, being rigorous, are they incommensurable? And, and is it possible to find a common language which will, in, which will facilitate or may even make possible a kind of discussion about methods that might be deemed by all IP scholars within this global conversation as sufficiently or adequately in some way scientific or rigorous. Idea 
about the relationship between IP and economics when it comes to thinking about the policy process and, and mm -hmm. speaking truth to power, if you want me. And Jeff makes the point that, well, if I'm trying to prepare a paper for I.O., I actually can't speak uh, for the policy. I think you can. You're much more flexible than that. I've read enough of your work recently to recognize that you can actually speak to a policy community if you need to and if you want to. And they're two different skills, and one doesn't negate the other. And one of the things that, that I know that Mark Blythe is doing as he sits there, Len Seabrook, Eleni are doing as they sit here. They're part of a Warwick Commission of Inquiry that's interacting uh, with people in the public, private sector, uh, financial world. It's not, it's not, what's the word, it's not infecting either of them. You're, People do not lose their ability to be scholars uh, simply because they suck with members from the, from the policy world. Uh, and I think if you throw that into the mix, it's one of the things that you find that gives you a bit of comparative advantage in IPE over policy and economics. One of the economists on the current Warwick Commission, uh, he's, he's without doubt one of the most methodological, economically, quantitative, scientific economists I've come across in a long time. Says he's heard more sense talked about the global financial crisis by the political scientists on the commission than he's heard at all talked by his colleagues in the economic fraternity. And the other thing we've got to get over, uh, and it's easy for me, because you know, I've got the foreman's job now, uh, and I know you haven't, Jeff, yet, but one of the things we've got to get over is being scared of economists. Take them on, for God's sake, uh, and you can do it. And most of them don't mind. Most of them are actually quite good when you do it. But there is a bit of intimidation going on here, and we need to resist it uh, as a community. And it's where that link between scholarship and policy uh, is important, and where I believe if it does have some kind of differences, uh, can make a bit of a, bit of a difference. So. Okay, thanks for that. We'll, um, we'll go along the panel for a last time, because we're running up against the clock. We'll finish with Mark, so Shirin, do you want to Yeah, I want to um, say two things, really. One is to respond to your question. Um, I think critique is a very valid part of um, development of ideas. So to say that feminists criticize this and criticize that, that is a starting point, to try and do it from vigorously and to try and prevent produce evidence that allows you to ask different questions, I think is a perfectly valid way of moving forward, moving disciplines forward, and moving our thinking um, and knowledge forward. So I, I don't uh, really know what more to say on that. I do want to say a little bit about um, what Richard just said, because I think that is also a disciplinary agenda which is being imposed on us increasingly. Um, which does worry me a little bit, you know. And feminists, again, have done a lot of policy work and continue to do so, at the same time agonize about being co-opted, right? And I think what, what, what worries me is not that we can't do it. I think we can do it and we should do it. But it's in a funny sort of way that old uh, sort of Marxist um, Edinburgh school thingy, you know, this phrase which is in and against the state. It is when you begin to think you can actually change things beyond a point. That I, by engaging with the UN or going and giving a lecture at the World Bank or going to UNDP and writing a report for them, can actually begin to shift through my work. Because then we are completely chucking everything in terms of our analysis of structures of power out of the window. So it is engaging with policy processes, engaging with state sort of institutions, um, that's fine. And I think that in a way, of course it doesn't mean that I can't write a critical article, but also having the modesty and also the criticality to say, actually, I can shift things on this, but I can't shift things on that. And on that, just to very carefully say, one of the big debates within feminism that happened within, between Nancy Fraser and Marion Young, for example, in 97 was about the cultural turn that feminism took 
in the 1990s. And so Fraser's concern was that you, know, you can incorporate within capitalist social relations a recognition politics, but it is much more difficult to incorporate a redistributive politics. And you know, so that's not, again, that's the debate that Marxists have had as well, or historical material, whatever. So I'm just, what I'm trying to say is that yes, of course, and it does worry me that, you know, in a way, this impact agenda of the ESRC, which of course we are seeing a lot of, might actually um, <coughs> narrow down the space of, of um, critical IB somewhat. Yeah, I'm going to pick up on what Sharon just said and then sort of add a couple points. Uh, most of them come back to this notion of disciplinary practices, and I, maybe I've been reading too much sociology of professions, but um, one of the questions we're sort of batting around, one of the points batting around the room is, you know, can we become truly interdisciplinary? Can we just do what Marx said and sort of abandon these things? And the answer is maybe, but the, you know, the realist in me, the person who's actually read the sociology of, not, of, of professions says, there's no way, because the politics behind the construction of these professions, who gets to count as an economist, who gets to count as a political scientist or a biologist or whatever, there are strong vested interests at stake in sort of breaking down these barriers. And so the likelihood of that happening is, is, is quite small. And sort of you know, building off what Sharon was saying about, um, about, about exclusion uh, this, this evening, one of the points that, again, seeks disciplinary practices is going back to Campbell's point about operationalization, is that you spoke a lot about the silence of, of, of women, and you used this interesting example in your comments about how do we measure the impact of women at the UN, and how do, how do we count these things? Women, live in the, women operate a lot in the informal sector and households. So the question is, well, if you can't operationalize these things, and it becomes more and more difficult to actually get these things in, a, in an operationalized manner, then the problem is it becomes less attractive to people, to graduate students, to PhD students, particularly when they're told, a lot of times, particularly in American school, if you can't operationalize it, if you can't quantify it, if you can't formalize it, you're not going to get a job. So it's very difficult, I think, for people who want to do feminist IP, particularly in the United States, to be told, well, if you do these things, the chances of you getting a job are this small, not because you can't do good scholarship, but because there's just not a lot of calls out there for the type of work that you're doing. And so it severely narrows, as you said, it constrains the field of inquiry. And it's not because it's not good scholarship, it's because I think of these disciplinary practices lurking in the background. And then finally, I guess sort of Richard's point. I'm not as scared of the economists, mm -hmm. I don't think. In fact, I try to speak to them. What's interesting, I think, is that they're actually becoming more like us, more like IPE scholars in this sense. I think the economist article is a good one. But I think also there was this, there was this recent sort of Fuhrer over uh, Simon Johnson, who was at MIT, then the chief economist at the IMF, wrote this piece in Atlantic Monthly talking about how the United States is like Russia in the sense that the financial system is, is, is owned by vested interests that are blocking reform. And this created a huge dialogue on, place, on, on, on the blogosphere and RGE monitor and all these places. And that's because, in a sense, you know, they're starting to go back to this thing that political scientists have been sorry, IPE scholars, political scientists, and others have been studying about for 20 or 30 years, which is that politics matters. The, 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 the problem is convincing these individuals in a serious way that what we say matters without using the same trappings of methods, of formalism, and et cetera. You know, I spent three or four months in the IMF learning a lot about the organization, but at the end of the day, I think that many of these economists, high-level economists, thought that we were just really sophisticated historians just really good at telling a good story. And it's hard to sort of make the case that we're not just sophisticated historians, I think, without using the trappings of what mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. have provided us. We won't have that same disciplinary success without doing it. And I think that's a lot of what the economic sociologists have done, for good or for bad, selling their soul perhaps to the devil, if you will, mm -hmm. but they've had a lot of success in making this impact because they're able to use these methodologies and epistemologies. Thanks, Ben. Um, I'm going to start with Richard's point because it gives me an opportunity to answer some of the other questions. Um, R Richard, I'm fully persuaded by the clarion call to take the economists on, um, although I think in IP we should perhaps do that in particular ways. Um, I, I detect a certain uh, econophobia, uh, the fear of economics, uh, and I also detect uh, the flip side of that within IP, which is to take the economists on uh, by engaging in wholesale and often ad hominem dismissal uh, of what it is that economists do. Um, and uh, I, I think if we show uh, a rather greater sensitivity 
um, to uh, the history of economics and also to uh, historiographical studies in economics, what we can do is to uncover some very important, some very interesting competing traditions within economics. I think one thing that IP has to do to be able to export itself in this sense uh, is to treat economics less in the singular uh, and economics more in the plural uh, and to understand um, the very different styles uh, of economic theory uh, which exist and also to understand the way in which uh, economic concepts have developed over time. I think one of the things that IP is well placed to export um, is a history of the historiography of economics. Uh, I think it can look at economics not necessarily in an interdisciplinary sense so much as a predisciplinary sense uh, to work out historiographically how the discipline of economics took shape uh, in the way that it has done because it's a particular story, it's a particular story of submersion uh, of uh, competing traditions and those competing traditions are there to be uh, discovered rediscovered. Um, they already exist. Shireen was talking about traditions which already exist before, and they already exist within economics. Uh, and we can use those uh, against some of the uh, colonising propensities uh, of economics. So I like the idea uh, of taking the economists on, but I think we should do that um, in a way which is much more sensitive to what exists broadly as economics than simply to dismiss economics uh, on methodological ground. I think that this, Ben, would stop us being parasitical uh, on other people and give uh, the possibility of contributing uh, something uh, to broader debates. A history of the historiography of economics is necessarily subversive as well. Um, it points to uh, instances uh, in which decisive moments have been reached. Um, instances in which uh, economics has taken a, a particular turn and a particular turn for a particular reason under the influence of particular types of theories and particular interventions designed to make concepts work in particular ways. And I think by revealing all those particularities, uh, then to engage in a history of the historiography of economics uh, is necessarily uh, subversive. Uh, it exposes attempts to colonise a subject field for a particular way of thinking. Uh, and I think that is a contribution, uh, a broader contribution that we in IPE are actually well placed to make. Um, Jeff raises the interesting point about the who gets to count as issues. I'm not sure that point uh, is as constrictive for IPE as it might be uh, in other subject fields. Because I don't think that many people who work in IPE uh, know whether they themselves count as being part of IPE. Uh, I'm not sure there is that, that, that rigid self-identification, certainly when it becomes possible to identify what we think is of as really good IPE scholarship that comes from people who work in different subject fields, with different disciplinary headings, in different departments, uh, possibly on campus, but we have to go on a bit of a hike to find them uh, and their offices. I don't think in IPE we have those um, what counts as uh, issues uh, as much uh, as there might be anywhere else. Thanks. Um, so in closing, I'm going to try and sort of not summarise, but give some thoughts that take your question seriously about what IPE is for and its relationship to economics that Richard also invited me to, to say something about. Um, I don't actually do quantitative work, but I think quantitatively. If you actually read a lot of the stuff that I do, and particularly recently, it's filled with terms like kurtosis and variance and all this sort of stuff. And I think like a quant, because I think it's a very useful way of thinking about the world. But the mistake is, and this is what I've become completely convinced of, and this is perhaps what IPE is for in its good form, is that what economists sell us and what they sell the world and why they're so powerful, having written a fair bit about economic ideas, is an illusion. And the illusion is that the world is predictable. And it's based upon the assumption that with basically enough computers and enough data sets, enough data points, 
you can kind of do a Laplace. You can figure out the position of all the past positions of all the particles, and you just run it forward, and then you end up with the world where it is. And this assumes a couple of things. Number one, that the world is ergodic, that multiple sample paths converge to definite mean, so that you can actually then get a distribution and then say if things are brought log normal and therefore probable and so on and so forth. The second one that they do is they assume that the world's Turing programmable. That is to say there's a definite procedure for calculating a result. You put those two things together, and this speaks to Paul's issue as well, you end up with a world in which you can tell the future by an analysis of the past. And I'll give you an example as to why this is utterly fallacious from recent research I've been doing. If you actually have a look into the backgrounds of the people who became the serious high-end quants in Wall Street, a lot of them came out of high-energy physics. They were statistical quantum physicists. They do the type of uh, work with, um, they, they make the type of multiple regression analysis that political scientists do, literally look like a baby picking its nose. I mean, it's incredibly complex work. And, but the thing is, the quantum world, even though it's indeterminate, is not indeterminate random in the way that a bullshit gets talked about it sometimes. It basically boils down to the fact that it's predictable with intolerances. And you can sort of like, you know, talk about what future states of the probability will, distribution will look like given past states. Now, along come a bunch of bankers, and they say, we need to price options. And you're a bunch of unemployed physicists, and you can do really, really huge amounts of data crunching, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right, so can you think you can come up with some models that will actually help us price you know, future options and think about risk and all that? Sure, absolutely, with the assumption that the world is ergodic and programmable and linear. And it's not. So you've got to, why would they think that? Well, because they're bloody physicists. They're not economists. They don't know anything about markets. Now, the bankers who are hiring them, they're the ones who actually know stuff about markets and banks and money, but they don't know anything at all about statistics. So the blind leads the blind into an absolute cul-de-sac, which inadvertently just blew a $4 trillion hole in the global financial system. That's where we can make an intervention. That's what IPE is for. It's to tell that type of story, to say that you can't do these things. The world is actually not ergodic. It's not programmable. It's not predictable in the way that economists think. And we need to engage with them on that basis and change their minds. Because the one thing that they can sell is something that every policymaker wants, control. Prediction. I know what the future is going to be like because I've got a lovely sophisticated model and you have a bunch of stories and anecdotes from an N of three. You lose, we win. That's what we need to attack. That's what we need to change. And that's what I see the engagement of IPE being really, really powerful and meaningful. Don't immediately start leaving uh, after I thank the speakers because we have one more announcement we want to make. But I would like um, to formally thank um, uh, the speakers uh, for... Uh, coming and engaging and, uh, uh, and saying so many interesting things to us all, and, and I guess in particular for Mark for uh, not only coming here uh, across the pond uh, to talk to us, but also putting things together in the first place. So thank you very much for that. Thank you.